This is Sharing the Rock by Bill Grace, recorded for the Malheur ESD with permission from the author. Shaping our future through leadership for the common good. Published by Common Good Works. To Sandy, our children, Nick, Ben, and Wuga, and all the other children of the world. While visiting Jerusalem in April 1975, I came close to a prolonged, bitter struggle over a rock. Seeking a place to stay, my first evening in the city, I saw a modest building with a sign out front, written mostly in Hebrew, which I could not read, but containing the English word, hostel. So I inquired about lodging. The staff welcomed me warmly and showed me to a room. I got to know the staff as I shared my experiences of exploring Jerusalem with them every evening. Perhaps this is why, on the third day of my stay, they asked if I would join them for the weekly Shabbat ritual, to which I replied, I would be honored, especially since I'm not Jewish. The staff exclaimed, You're not Jewish? This is a residence for rabbinical students. Embarrassed, I apologized and explained how I had misinterpreted the sign. Laughing, they said that no harm had been done, but that I should make plans to move to a nearby youth hostel the next afternoon. I replied that I would visit the Dome of the Rock that morning and return midday to move my things. Their eyes widened with interest, because the Dome of the Rock... A Muslim site was off-limits for them. They asked if I would describe it when I returned. Outside, in the old city, my eyes fixed on the striking architecture of the Dome of the Rock, its golden cupola contrasting sharply with the earth-toned structures surrounding it. It is the third holiest shrine in the Muslim world, built over the rock from which Muhammad took his night journey, ascending to heaven on a barak, a white-winged horse, accompanied by the archangel Gabriel. It also rests on the site of Solomon's temple, known as the first temple, and the second temple of Jerusalem, built after the first was destroyed and the only remaining remnant of which is in the form of the Western Wall, one of Judaism's most sacred places. Standing at the Western Wailing Wall, the site of the holiest synagogue in the Jewish world, I felt awe as I watched devout Jews offering prayers. Moments later, I climbed the steps to the Temple Mount, the broad platform supporting the Dome of the Rock, entered it, and was equally awed by the beauty of its intricate mosaic work and the reverent faces of Muslims that worship. Over lunch at the hostel, I described my visit to the Dome of the Rock in detail. As I finished, one of the rabbinical students said to my surprise, Did you know that the rock is also the altar where Abraham prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac? The Jews, he explained, believe that before the Messiah can appear, Solomon's temple must be rebuilt on that very spot. He left the obvious unsaid. For the temple to be rebuilt, the dome of the rock had to be torn down. I thought, this is the kernel of the conflict in the Middle East, two religions making equal claim to the same sacred rock, unable to share space and thus causing the people of both faiths to suffer. Later that afternoon, I sat on the tree-shaded hilltop known as the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed before the crucifixion, pondering how this ancient city didn't seem to have enough room for more than one story of faith. All three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, claim Jerusalem as a holy site, and although they have since divided it into separate quarters, these groups, like many siblings, can't get along. I paced around the garden, deeply troubled by the implications of this endless hostility. How will there ever be peace in the Middle East? 
21 years later, in the summer of 1996, I had a profound vision based on this experience that also helped to guide the writing of this book. At the time, Sandy, our two sons, and I were visiting Sandy's family in Hanska, Minnesota, a peaceful rural town of 500 people. One morning, when Sandy was out with friends and her parents had taken the boys downtown for breakfast, I decided to spend some time meditating in the upstairs guest room. As I sat there, quietly, memories associated with the room flooded my awareness. I recalled that on our wedding day in 1979, about an hour before the ceremony, the other men in the wedding party and I had been in this room changing into our tuxedos. That day, I had been surrounded by my friends and family, representing all the stages of my life. Embraced by the warm memories, I experienced a profound joy, which I understood as a gift from spirit. From the depths of my heart, I said, thank you. Suddenly, I heard the voice of spirit say, in a casual yet enthusiastic tone, you're welcome. Then I heard an invitation, do you want to see something? As if this were an ordinary conversation, I replied, sure. Then something remarkable happened. As if by some cinematic special effect, the bedroom in Hanska was stretched upward beyond the Earth's atmosphere, from where I saw the entire Earth suspended before me in space. Next, I heard the question, what do you see? And answered intuitively, all one family. The loving, spiritual presence surrounding me confirmed the accuracy of my response, finding myself just as quickly returned to the bedroom in Hanska. I was filled with profound gratitude and said thank you again. At that moment, the voice asked me if I remembered the question I had pondered back in the Garden of Gethsemane. How will there ever be peace in the Middle East? Then the voice said, Share the rock. In a flash, I found myself back in space, looking again with deep love at the earth, and a second time I heard the words, share the rock. Only this time, the meaning of the word rock expanded to refer to the entire planet, some call the third rock from the sun. Though the whole experience lasted only seconds, it felt timeless and left me amazed, humbled, and forever changed. The more I observed the human and environmental costs of competition for exclusive rights to territory, oil, markets, and power, the more my heart yearned for the day when all humanity would taste the love, peace, and justice I witnessed in the divine encounter in Hanska. Accomplishing such a vision, I soon realized, requires a new kind of leadership, one cast for the specific purpose of ensuring that we share the rock known as Earth our common home, by recognizing that we are all one family, a discovery that inspired the writing of this book. Introduction. Sharing the Rock is the product of my longtime interest in social justice, a thread in my life that can be traced through a series of influential experiences ranging from early family circumstances to world travel to a 30-year vocation working to advance social change and leadership for the common good. I grew up in a unique, single-parent, economically poor, but educationally stimulating household. My father was a fork truck driver who had nevertheless received a Jesuit education, majoring in classics, and had knowledge of Latin and Greek. Behind his longshoreman's vocabulary lay the mind of a blue-collar scholar, and he taught me how to look beneath the surface of things and engage in responsible social critique.
During my junior high school and high school years, like many teenagers, was socially ostracized. I learned firsthand what it feels like to be a victim of injustice and unkindness, an experience that later made me able to empathize with the pain of others and react with indignation to perceived injustices. When I went to Berkshire Community College in the fall of 1969, however, I found a mentor in John Lambert, a professor of environmental studies. His belief in me opened a new door to learning, and his love for the natural world stimulated my interest in the environment, inspiring me to serve as the campus liaison for the first Earth Day in April 1970. Studying ecology while engaged in environmental activism helped me see that we are all connected in a single web of life and that it is important to encourage new behaviors that respect that reality. In 1972, as a spectator at the Olympic Games in Munich, I saw the people of the world come together in celebration and unity, only to have this vision shattered by an act of horrific violence. The massacre of Israelis, motivated by religious intolerance. Afterward, I met an elderly Jewish man who encouraged me to visit Dachau, where I experienced, with horror, evidence of the Holocaust. These two events left me wondering how humanity was capable of such cruelty and what could be done to help people treat each other with greater care and concern. After college, in 1975, I joined a friend on a backpacking trip around the world. I had read about chronic malnutrition, hunger, political oppression of the poor, and lack of religious tolerance. But on this trip, I witnessed these conditions directly. I also experienced the kindness of strangers on a daily basis. One compassionate encounter stays with me vividly. In Egypt, I developed sunstroke and was close to death. The owner of the Golden Hotel in Cairo treated me like a son, refusing payment for my room, food, medicine, and doctor visits as he and his staff nursed me back to health over the course of a week. To this day, I remain deeply touched and informed by the care and generosity he showed to a stranger and regard him as an example of goodness made manifest. Through these life experiences, I saw that humans have the capacity to advance both good and evil. History is filled with stunning examples of both. Although our darker nature is always present, I believe, and educational theory concurs, that individuals and groups alike can intentionally develop virtuous habits of the mind and heart and become active agents for goodness in general and social justice in particular. While beginning a career as an educator, I also recognize that leadership has the potential to be the most effective means of bringing about needed social change because leadership impacts every field of study and every level of human organization. After I had gained an increased awareness of the need for social change, I began to explore ways in which I could focus more on leadership for the common good and envision a model to involve others in this activity. I saw that we live in an era of possibly grave developments. The Earth's environmental systems are extremely stretched, and the world's poor, with their growing sense of the unjust social system that causes their suffering, are increasingly impatient for change. I realized, however, that this is also a time of unprecedented opportunities that call not for panic or despair, but for compassion, imagination, and action. Eventually, it became clear to me that what is needed is a new model of leadership, one that can guide our choices and behaviors toward a future where all can thrive. Specifically, we need leadership to foster a new worldview, 
a common good worldview to replace the divisive us-them worldview that has dominated human history since time immemorial at every level from local to global. A common good worldview to replace the divisive us-them worldview that has dominated human history since time immemorial at every level from local to global. Sharing the Rock presents such a model of leadership for the common good. The book is an offering to those who aspire to living values-based lives for the good of others, who know that humanity needs to make some big changes fast, and who are looking for a framework for doing both. Part one of the book explains the common good worldview and why shifting to it is so urgently needed. The most effective way to change a worldview is in terms of the moral stance that undergrids it. A common good worldview registers at the third or highest level of moral development identified by development theory, where choices are made based on principle and concern for the good of all affected by them. In this book, the third level of moral development is called the third circle. When individuals make choices from a third circle orientation, they can be confident that those decisions are furthering the common good. Part one also introduces leadership for the common good as the necessary tool for accomplishing this change in worldview, describing the four cornerstones of such leadership, justice, care, inclusiveness, and the moral urgency of acting now since time is short. This leadership model is inclusive in regard to who can be a leader for the common good, not just those who are already in formal leadership positions, but anyone who chooses to live according to a third circle orientation. Part 2 presents seven practices of leadership for the common good. Some of these practices, particularly choosing personal values and crafting a vision, are familiar from other leadership models. Others are specific to this model, seeking out resources for social change that are available only in the marginalized parts of society, creating a social environment where all points of view, including the unpopular, are welcome, and cultivating the leader's voice or genuine expression and action in bringing about change. This leadership model leaves room for hope as an unshakable companion for the leader who is willing to move directly into the heart of challenging issues. Finally, the core of this model of leadership for the common good is courage, for in the end it is thoughtful, strategic action driven by courage that brings about the greatest change. Each chapter in part two opens with a story highlighting a real person who has done this work well. These chapters also include exercises and reflection questions to assist readers in applying the practices in their own lives as leaders. Part 1. Fundamentals of Leadership for the Common Good Leadership for the Common Good Third Circle Leadership If we are all one family, why not share the earth and its resources so that everyone has enough to live a decent, fulfilling life? This simple idea offers a straightforward, if elusive, solution to dozens of complex global problems. The common good is a big idea, easily embraced from a perspective miles above the planet, where the wholeness of the earth and interconnectedness of all life cannot be missed. On the ground, it is a harder idea to hold on to. The common good, however, is ultimately a moral vision, approachable through a moral framework. It aligns with the highest or third level of moral development, where choices are governed by principles and inclusiveness. In this book, that third level is referred to as the third circle. The behaviors and choices associated with this moral territory offer a practical way of living that advances the common good. 
bringing the moral behaviors and choices of third circle orientation to bear on leadership yields four cornerstones of leadership for the common good. Leadership for the common good is the pathway to get us to a future in which everyone on the planet has a sufficient and sustainable lifestyle, and humanity is living within a new worldview that mirrors the oneness of the earth.